Welcome to Attachment Theory in Action, a weekly podcast presented by the Knowledge Center at Chaddock. Our podcast is dedicated to therapists, social workers, counselors, and psychologists working with clients from an attachment-based perspective. Join host Karen Doyle-Buckwalter for an insightful, informative, and inspiring conversation with leading attachment theory researchers and clinicians in the field. Today, Karen concludes her two-part discussion with Dr. Edward Tronick on his new book, The Power of Discord, co-authored by Dr. Claudia Gold. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. I'm Karen Doyle Buckwalter, your host, joining you from here at Chaddock. Well, today we have an interview with a very well-known person in the field of attachment. I'm going to be talking with Dr. Ed Tronick. Many of you are familiar with his famous experiment paradigm called the still face paradigm and I'm going to tell you a little bit more about him now. Dr. Tronick is a developmental and clinical psychologist. He is a university distinguished professor of psychology at the University of Massachusetts in Boston, is director of the child development unit and research associate in newborn medicine, a lecturer at Harvard Medical School, an associate professor of both Graduate School of Education and School of Public Health at Harvard. Wow, he is a busy guy. He also, along with several other colleagues, created the Infant Parent Mental Health Postgraduate Certificate Program at the University of Massachusetts in Boston. He has developed the Newborn Behavioral Assessment Scale and the Touch Points Project with T. Barry Brazelton. He also, as mentioned earlier, developed the Still Face Paradigm. And he's continuing to work on um, another assessment with Barry Lester called the Network Neurobehavioral Assessment Scale. Uh, He has a particular research interest area in the effects of maternal depression and other affective uh, disorders on infant and child social and emotional development and continues to do research and study in that area. He has published more than 200 scientific articles and four books and several hundred photographs. He's appeared on national radio and radio television programs. And his latest book, which is part of what we're going to be talking about today, is co-authored with Dr. Claudia Gold, who's a pediatrician. The title of the book is The Power of Discord, Why the Ups and Downs of Relationships Are the Secret to Building Intimacy, Resilience, and Trust. So stay tuned. Dr. Tronick will be here in just a minute. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to part two of our interview with Dr. Ed Tronick. Dr. Tronick, thank you for continuing this discussion. So last week we were talking about the still face and um, I want to share with listeners a, a portion of your book and how you write about first sharing the still face experiment with a group of scientists. So you say here it's 1975 uh, and you are going to show a clip of the still face experiment. 
projecting a video clip wasn't possible and you had to develop an innovative but crude technique for videotaping your experiments and devised a way to transfer the tapes to film so they could be viewed on a large screen. So you played the film of the still face. When you turned off the projector in the room, there was dead silence. You stood clutching the lectern, trying to sense the mood of the crowd. You say, I wasn't sure I could get from the stage to my seat without falling down in a heap. Obviously, it had been too big of a risk. And what appeared were 400 still faces. <laughs> so I'm imagining you doing this and I'm thinking that I'm thinking one of the things I'm thinking of is um, John Bowlby presenting to the British Psychoanalytic Society and how it didn't turn out well yes <laughs> it, it did not turn out well and you're wondering uh, what's gonna happen um, and if your career is over uh, but then there's a thunderous applause. So take us back to that moment and you know everything you were thinking and feeling leading up to that and then the reaction and why you were so concerned that it might flop, so to speak. I mean, you had a film showing it, you know? Um, this had been, this was research that was now really the focus of everything that I was doing. And I was head of the, the child development unit at Children's Hospital in, in Boston. And my whole research team was presenting research, a seminar. And it was at the Society for Research in Child Development. And it was when the society was small enough that you could have one plenary session and everybody there. So it was just a big deal, professional, presentation. Um, but I also knew that um, because I had shown the still face to for, you know, to other colleagues at different times before this, that there was a lot of skepticism about what might be going on, what the baby was doing, my interpretation of it. Um, so we put together this seminar and um, Everything, all of it went really well. I was the last person presenting, and I, I'm presenting this still face. By the way, you're traumatizing me again. <laughs> oh, no. You know, uh, we had figured out how to do these 16-millimeter film versions of it, uh, which had taken a lot of work at that time. I presented, I present the face-to-face part of the paradigm and people are, you know, laughing a little bit and you can get the reaction and, you know, I'm sort of feeling kind of calm. But as soon as I show the still face, the room goes silent. And in a way I was prepared for that, but I wasn't prepared for it in terms of just how reactive they were. Now, I had seen a whole bunch of these by then, you know, we had done a lot of study. So, I could see what was going on. But remember, I also knew that the baby would recover and the baby and mother would recover together. But in what I showed at that conference was I stopped it after the still face. So they never saw 
a recovery. And what I've also learned now showing the still faces, not only do I need to show the recovery, because then people relax, is that sitting in the audience and watching the still face and watching the mother not react induces a feeling of helplessness in the individual because they want to change it. They see what's happening to the baby and they want to change it, but they can't do anything about it. I had no idea about that when I first did this. So when I stop and the audience is just silent, I, I, I'm not breathing right now. I, I just had no idea what was happening. And I really had these thoughts like, this is, I'm done with. Whatever I've done here has been just a huge mistake in terms of what was presented. And then the applause came. Um, and, you know, that, that was thrilling. And when the, then the symposium was over and then people came up to me and, and I can remember some of these people because it was the first time I saw them. Um, Klaus and Kennel came up to me who are, you know, a bonding thing. Um, and, um, you know, Klaus has a withered arm or had a with, has a withered arm and, but it's, his right hand, and he shook hands with me with his withered arm, and he said, nice piece of work. Um, and Bob MD came up to me, and it was just like, you know, it was, um, I, don't, I don't know, it was just a fabulous, fabulous moment. But I think an important thing for me is to recognize that I did this still face as an experiment to show that babies were reactive to what the parent was doing. Yes. So I had this very small idea about what it was about. But what it's become, both perhaps in my thinking, but really what it's become is because other people have seen the possibilities of it. And what it might mean in terms of our understanding of infants and development. So that however many hundred studies there are using it, it's really become a standard paradigm, something that really speaks to, um, you know, the very issues that Bowlby raised, the, the issues that we've all been thinking about. And it became part of in a way, what you said at the beginning, the idea that the baby's responsive is something we, I think everybody accepts now. We know they're responsive. But at the time, we didn't know that. Um, and, um, and, and the still face has been part of that really radical change in our thinking about babies and their vulnerabilities and their strengths. Yes, yes. And you were 30-something at this point. Yeah, I was, um, I was 30, I was going on 31. Wow. Seemed like a very early end to my career. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, and you do mention in here, um, 
you know, that, that, that even some people could think, oh, the still face is cruel or, you know, or how are you getting this approved by your IRB or whatever? And I like how you talk about, um, it's not unfamiliar. You know, this, <laughs> this is something that happens day in and day out in the experience of infants and children. Well, you know, in, in the book, The Power of Discord, it, what I came to see, and it took a while to see it, um, was a number of things. The first thing to recognize was that the, the typical interactions between mothers and infants or fathers and infants weren't always synchronized. They weren't a perfect dance. They weren't Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers dancing together. They were like we all danced together, or, or most of us, you know, sort of novice dancers. We make mistakes, we recover, we make mistakes again. And that's really, that, that's what the face-to-face -face interaction is like between parents and infants. But we have this very romanticized view of the mother-child relationship. I mean, there's Jesus and Mary, always looking at one another. Um, actually, there are some portraits where Jesus and Mary are not looking at one another. Um, and we talk about the dance as being perfectly in sync. And when we started analyzing the face-to-face -face data, we began to find all the errors and what I subsequently began to call mismatches. Yes. Mother's doing one thing, the baby's doing another thing. Um, and then they recover. And when they recover, they get back together again. And I began to see that what that recovery, which I called a repair, was recovering from the mismatch that was taking place. And the mismatch, in a way, was a little piece of the still face, a little piece where the still face is two minutes long, three minutes long, or a minute long. Um, so it's a really big mismatch. Mother wants in, is not interacting, the baby wants to interact. When they get back together, there's a recovery and there's a repair for them. And that's also what happens in interactions. They're, you're matching with the person as to what you want to do, and you're mismatching with that person, and then you recover and you're matching again, you mismatch and you repair it, and you get back together. Um, so interactions um, you know, have this particular structure, which is matching, mismatching, repairing, matching, or what I now talk about in terms of messiness. Interactions are really messy. Well, when you talk about the 70-30 split, if you want to mm -hmm. share about that. Sure. Well, what we saw in a whole set of typical interactions was, on average, about 30% of the time was spent matching between the mother and the infant, and 70% of the time was spent in mismatching states. And there were pairs dyads of mothers and infants where it was maybe 15% and some of them where it was 50 or 60%, but none of them had that kind of 100% Fred Astaire, Ginger Rogers kind of synchrony. So I began to focus on why, why is there so much, so much mismatching? 
And it's pretty obvious. You're, you're interacting with a four-month-old. The interactions go very quickly. The infant misses a signal. The infant sends the wrong signal. The parent misreads a single signal. So there's a lot of reasons why there would be mismatch. But what the recovery does is, it, well, during the mismatch, you have, a, I, I saw it as a kind of little bit of negative affect or a little bit of stress. And then when you match again, you resolve that stress, and you resolve that negative affect, and you share positive affect. And so you're going from negative to positive affect. The baby is learning, oh, I can have negative affect with this person, but then very quickly have positive affect. I can trust this person to resolve errors that we're having in the interaction. And if we build trust in terms of what you're talking about with Bowlby, what you build is the attachment between the infant and the care and the mother or the caregiver. The infant begins to feel secure. Oh, we can have a mismatch, but nonetheless recover from it. We can repair it. And I can come to trust this person and with that trust, I've become securely attached to this. Yes. You know, and I, I'm i still wrestling in my mind with, with some of what you're writing about in the book with the recognizing how entrenched in our minds this idea of having it perfect is and having it like, okay, yeah, yeah, 70-30, Oh, that's good news for all of us. We can make lots of mistakes, um, but but still hanging on to the idea. But the the less of that, the better. Mm-hmm. And not and and really, um, what you're suggesting in this book is n- no, not necessarily. Like embrace embrace the discord and and how it contributes to building trust and resilience and all the things that you talk about in the book. But it wasn't until I read the example of the the one dyad that you looked at that was almost perfect together Mm -hmm. i mean they were in such synchrony that it was like this beautiful perfection thing and then um with the still face the child completely fell apart but couldn't recover and, and the idea that you're you're getting across in the book and you'll explain this better and i hope you will is that because the and I don't even remember what the age was, but because the child did not have these experiences of discord and the, the, the mm-hmm. ability to recover, they weren't recovering. So it's almost like there can be too much synchrony together. Can you talk more about that example? Because that's when it really yeah. hit me. Like I was really mm-hmm. having, I mean, of course I know what everything you're writing is correct. I mean, you're you're at Tronic writing this with a doctor or with a pediatrician. But, but I was like, until I read that, I was having a hard time, like really letting mm-hmm. go of the idea that more synchrony is always better and we should get it as good as we can. And surely 90, 10 mm-hmm. would be better, you know, or whatever. So if you could talk about that. <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's actually, uh, you're picking up on a really important set, set of ideas. It, one way to think about it is um, that if you were always in synchrony, if you were always able to fully coordinate, um, 
nothing would change. You would always be doing, in some sense, the same dance, and you would always be doing perhaps a perfect dance, the way Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers would do. But you'd always be in the same emotional level, whatever their smiles were like, whatever your emotion would be like with the infant or with a partner, um, and nothing would change. The only way you get change is to have errors or mismatches or whatever you want to call them. So if you think even of Darwinian theory of natural selection, natural selection is built on the errors between an organism and the environment. And what happens is perhaps the environment changes or more than likely over time, the organism changes and has an adaptation which comes out of their genetic ability. And so they go from being mismatched and the stressors of that mismatch, like the dinosaurs didn't resolve it really, um, to other species like birds, which you know, came from dinosaurs, but then had mismatches, and they've populated the world. They've made that reparation or, you know, natural, that change in natural selection. Well, that's true about relationships. Relationships are dynamic, they're changing, and what allows them to change is when there are mismatches that take place. Something goes wrong, and you try to find what it is that will help to resolve it. Mm -hmm. And I would suggest, uh, I'll come back to the, that baby in a minute, but I would suggest that what happens in adult relationships, and I've looked at this with uh, Sue Johnson, who's a couples therapist, um, is that when you have mismatches, and you come to trust this other person, even when the mismatch gets extreme, and I'm sure you never have extreme mismatches. <laughs> My wife and I never ever have you know, an extreme mismatch. <laughs> but what you've learned is we can, we can get through this. And that may not be sounding like a lot, but it really is a lot to be able to say, oh, we negotiated that before, we negotiated this before, and we'll figure out a way to get through this. The baby with the mother that you're talking about was a baby who was probably about 25, 26 months old. She's very verbal. Um, and the mother and the infant, when they're playing together, are just amazingly in sync. And they do, at 27 months of age, this mother and baby do what I think mothers and often daughters do, is they can complete each other's sentences. So the mother says something and the baby, this little girl just picks it up. And we're looking at this interaction. This is just fabulous. I mean, we have not seen interactions like this. And then we ask the mother not to react to this little girl. And this little girl gets really, really upset. And she has verbal, she has real verbal ability. And she said, why are you doing that? Stop doing that. Why aren't, she says, why aren't you acting or reacting to me or acting, something like that. Um, and 
then the mother comes back and they renegotiate, but they have a really hard time renegotiating. Now, I think that mother and in, that mother and that that baby um, represent the problem that you bring up. If you have, if it's if you're so synchronous that you never have the mismatches to repair, then you fail to develop that capacity to re repair. And when, even if you have a small stress, it becomes extremely disruptive. And I think for that little girl, what was happening with her mother was their attunement astonished us. And now the mother breaks the connection, breaks their synchrony that they have at this really high level. And this little girl has had so little experience with dealing with disconnections with her mother that she doesn't know what to do. It just really distresses her. And then when they try to get back together again, they now have the problem of what do we do? We don't know how to do it. So in normal interaction, you have a lot of mismatches. 70, 30, 30% is matching, 70% is not matching. Well, you get a lot of experience repairing. How do you get your mom to smile? How do you get her to look back at you? How does she get you to look back at her? How, does, how do you develop a shared interest in a toy? How do, you, how do you repair all those inevitable ongoing mismatches? And what you learn is how to cope with them, you learn how to deal with the stress. Um, you learn trust, you develop trust in the other person. And I think a really critical thing that one develops is you learn that negative affect, negative emotion, negative experience of the mismatch can be repaired and be changed into something positive. And, and that's where I think you said it at the beginning, that hope comes through. You begin to believe that things will work out. I have hope for the future. Um, and in, you know, in the current circumstances where uncertainty, at least in my experiences, is so great. And we've never had the experience of repairing this kind of situation that we find ourselves with the virus. That it's very hard to begin to see the other side of it. You're relying on this belief that things sort of work out. But here, here's a case where we're really not sure it will work out. And we've never repaired it before. And if we do repair it, then maybe when it comes back or the next time, we'll, uh, we'll do better. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's, it's just so good. And... You know, talking about mismatch and um, looking at some of my other notes here and that discord creates good things, you know, mm -hmm. and. Um, yeah, without without the discord. Um, everything just it would be machine like. Um, and actually, I had this experience. I was presenting a videotape of Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers dancing. I was showing, you know, it's gorgeous what they're doing. Um, 
and I was showing it as perfect synchrony. And I had this experience in watching it. Um, and now I ask the audience, the participants about it when I show it. Um, do you think that, does this feel real to you? Does it feel authentic to you in terms of their dance? Very few people see it as authentic. Whereas if you show them a dance and there are lots to show where it's just not perfect, you know, they're little miss whatever, that carries the authenticity. Mm. Um, um, and if you think about someone giving a speech and they give it just perfectly, um, you know, with no ums, no hums, no whatever, or no breathing, um, it also doesn't feel authentic. It feels canned. Yes. And someone reads something from a teleprompter and just reads through it. Um, it, it just doesn't, it doesn't ring true. The, the errors that we make and correct are the ones that say we're really present. Yes, yes. And I know we're running low on time, but there are a couple other things <laughs> I wanted to see if I could ask you about because um, you say in the book, connection is not a set of behaviors. And um, I feel like this is an important theme that, that runs through the book. And I even remember um, in that in that dinner we had long ago in Chicago, um, a discussion about this is a misunderstanding that you just tell the mother to engage in these attachment behaviors or something like that. And this mm -hmm. not understanding that it's different for every mother and baby. And so I wondered if you could speak to that a little bit, that it's not just, I think it ties into partly what you were just saying, but, but, but also just that connection is not a set of behaviors. What is it? I, I think we have to recognize that what's going on in the interaction is that on one side, <clears throat> the mother is not only engaging in behaviors, but she's having a whole range a whole variety of experience. She's experiencing emotions. She's experiencing intentions. She's experiencing concern when she's with her four-month-old about what they're going to be when they're five years old or when they're adolescents. Mm -hmm. What parent hasn't woken up with the, the baby at three o'clock in the morning and thought, if this continues into adolescence, I'm going to throttle this kid, right? <laughs> um, because you're always, parents are always engaged in the future. But we as humans are always making predictions about the future. We're anticipating the future. So, so much of it is going on in our minds and not just in our behavior. And what's happening with the infants is that the infants early on appreciate some of that intersubjectivity. They appreciate the intentionality that's going on. Um, Andy Meltzer does brilliant experiments in which he shows that with an 11 month old, hopefully I'm right about this, at least age wise, with an 11 month old, if the 11 month old is watching an adult take an object that they supposed to be, that they want to put into a jar, but the adult misses. So the infant is watching the adult do something 
which is drop the object, but not fulfill, quote unquote, the intention. What the infant does is take the object and put it in the jar. So the infant is reading the intention of the adult, even though the behavior of the adult isn't what the infant ends up doing. Um, it's, it's just beautiful, beautiful work. And when you think about the still face, a two-month-old looking at the mother saying, how come in their head, I, they're saying it in some way, why aren't you reacting to me? They have an expectation about what's going on. So over time, as the infant develops, the infant and the adult begin to work with each other in terms not only of what they're doing in the moment, but in terms of their subjective perception, their subjective view of the other person. I know I can trust you, which means if your behavior messes up, it's okay. I can deal with it, right? The mother says, oh, I know you're cranky now, but you're the most wonderful child in the world. And you don't really, you know, you don't really want to make this difficult, but you, you are having a tough time and you can't figure out what's going on. So over time, we more and more deal with not so much the behavior. The behavior may carry some of the message. But we also are, we contextualize everything that's going on in terms of um, what I call a state of consciousness, our awareness, our implicit and explicit understanding of what the other person is to me and how they are with me. And, and we act in terms of that long-term understanding and then the behavior is just coming up front um, and playing out um, over time. Yes, yes. Well, um, this has been a wonderful discussion um, talking about the, the new book, The Power of Discord, Why the Ups and Downs of Relationships Are the Secret to Building Intimacy, Resilience, and Trust. Everybody needs to go find it and buy it, I would say. Um, I just am really finding it a wonderful read. And I thank you so much for being here today and, and joining us to talk about the book. What are your hopes for the book before we say goodbye? I hope, I hope it carries the message to parents and to all of us in our relationships that uh, this expectation or this belief that we have that uh, real intimacy, uh, real trust comes out of being perfectly in tune uh, is, not, is not the way the world and our relationships really are. And that what makes them possible and what deepens them and what leads to trust, intimacy, and resilience and capacity to cope with stress is the discord and the the repairing of the discord. Um, so you don't have to feel guilty. Um, you can say things like, oh, we're really out of sync. Isn't that great? <laughs> let's get out of sync with one another for a while and let's see what comes out of it. <laughs> have much more fun that way. You know? <laughs> be a lot less worried. 
Wonderful. Well, thank you so much again for being here. Thank you very here. much. Thanks. Mm -hmm. Goodbye for now. Bye. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Attachment Theory in Action. Please follow our site, tkcchaddock.org, or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or Podbean for future podcasts. If you enjoyed our podcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. For additional resources, training opportunities, and blogs, please log on to tkcchaddock.org. We hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore the world of adoption, trauma, and attachment theory.